Uh, so over the last several years, my wife Ashley has run uh, a number of half marathons uh, in both Houston and Dallas. She has trained diligently for months, and next week she'll be running uh, her first full marathon uh, supporting World Vision. And so I'm really excited for her, proud of her. Uh, but the unsung hero of her story is me. Um, <laughs> alongside of her, I've been preparing and training diligently to stand stationary on the sidelines and yell encouraging things at her. Um, I've got my technique down, how to get up the crack of dawn, get the kids and myself ready for what's usually a very cold morning, uh, the route to take to avoid the police roadblocks for the race, where to park, where I can get a good view of the runners, and also access to coffee. I know where that spot is. I will not be telling any of you. Um, and uh, Ashley has been running dozens of miles every month. I have simultaneously gone into rigorous training on how to make the perfect poster, uh, the right material to use, the right size text, the type of markers. Last year, the poster I held up said, you've been running for 13.1 miles. I've been standing here for 13.1 minutes. We both needed a nap. So uh, I'm not sure. I'm still plotting what my sign's going to say this year. Uh, joking aside, though, cheering for runners in a marathon is harder than you would think. Some of you might be planning to do that next week uh, to see our runners, Real Hope runners, go. Um, it's harder than you think because it's easy, easier to miss people than you would imagine. It's like you're just standing there, and they're just thousands of runners, just like relentless waves of thousands of runners. And so you're just standing there going, okay, am I going to miss them? Am I going to miss them? And uh, my kids are sitting there, where's mommy every 10 seconds? I'm like, I don't know, I'm watching. And uh, a couple times I've nearly missed her. Like I'm watching, watching, and it's like, oh, she's right in front of me. Um, And so it's actually nice now they have an app, the marathon does, where it, it tracks them via GPS. So I can be like, all right, kids, she's a block away. Posters up, let's do it. But, you know, I've been preparing uh, to, to go uh, watch her run and all the other runners here. Um, and, of course, thinking about this series, Kingdom Life. And, and there's something about that experience of watching, waiting, anticipating, vigilance that is reflective of some of the things that Jesus said about his kingdom. Um, last week, for those of you who weren't here, we started this series and we, we talked about what the kingdom of God is. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God all the time. Um, and that word kingdom is even a familiar word to us, but what does it really mean? That's what we're kind of exploring in this series. So there are two kind of overarching ideas about the kingdom that we introduced last week. I'll just review those real quick. The first is when we speak about the kingdom, that refers to Christ's reign. Um, it refers to his reign, the fact that he is king. Um, and then also, secondly, the kingdom is both present tense and future tense. That's what the Bible speaks about the kingdom. So the kingdom is present and growing now in the lives of people who've given their life to Christ and submitted to his reign, the church, broadly speaking. That's the kingdom as it's present now. But in the future, the kingdom of God will be established in a new way worldwide. Everyone, regardless of how they feel, will acknowledge that Christ is Lord in a very visible, observable way. He will be king. So there's a, a present tense kingdom and the future tense kingdom. And um, Jesus spoke about the kingdom all the time in his ministry. And last week we looked at a couple of parables uh, that, that gave us the lesson that we should prize the kingdom and our relationship with Christ more than anything else. It should be worth everything to us. 
And today we're going to look at another parable uh, that's going to tell us more about the kingdom, specifically about the future kingdom uh, that we're praying for and waiting for. Uh, So open up with me, if you would, to Matthew 25. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, is the first book in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the layout of Scripture, um, if you're flipping open your Bible, it's roughly 70% of the way through. Um, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, those Bibles on the table, um, we'd love for you to take one of those. That would be our gift to you. Um, So Matthew 25, we'll start in the first verse. I want to say something about parables for a second, though. You know, Jesus, he didn't always teach in parables, but it was definitely a hallmark of the way that he taught. It was something distinctive he did. Um, And and parables, just so you kind of have a definition, parables are short fictional stories designed to illustrate a spiritual truth. They're kind of like a fable. And and Jesus taught through these parables. Um, And and because they're fictional, they... uh, they are flexible in terms of their realism. Uh, sometimes Jesus' parables were very realistic. They were just kind of descriptive of life in the first century. In other cases, uh, Jesus told parables where there are aspects of the story that were totally outlandish, that, that would never have happened, that would have struck the listener as shocking or even humorous. For example, in one parable that Jesus told, he said, uh, once there was a man who owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, talent is an ancient unit of currency that is equivalent to 20 years of labor, of wages. 20 years worth of wages was one talent. And Jesus says, yeah, this guy owed the king 10,000 talents. He said, the guy owed the king, I don't know, 200,000 years worth of money. It was, it was like saying a bazillion dollars. It's just an absurd amount of money. And so it was drawing the listener in so that they would hear... Uh, the spiritual truth. Um, And so we're going to see a little bit of that today in the parable we look at. We're going to see some realism. We're also going to see some exaggeration, some some hyperbole. So let's start. Matthew 25, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven, now let's stop right there. Highlight at that time, if you're taking notes. Now, these are these kinds of transitional statements in scripture that are really easy to just gloss over. Like at that time, you don't even, it's like it doesn't even register. But when you see those statements, it's, if you want to really understand what the Bible's saying, it's important to ask yourself things like, at what time? Jesus just said, at that time. Well, what time is he talking about? Often, what, when you see something like that, it means you need to back up a little bit in Scripture to see the context. So in this case, the previous chapter, 24, tells us what at that time means. So let me just read a few verses from Matthew 24 so it sets the stage for this parable. Matthew 24, we get a description of something happening in Jesus' life. It says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, in the rest of chapter 24, Jesus talks about the end of time, the end of history, when he's going to return, you know, what that will be like when he ushers in his kingdom, the final future kingdom. And he explains all this, and in verse 42, he has this key statement. He says, therefore, in light of everything I just told you, keep watch, because you do not know on what day 
your Lord will come. So that's what Jesus means when he says at that time. It means the end of time when he will usher in his eternal kingdom, when he will put everything right. And his main point was there in verse 42, keep watch. You don't know when this is going to happen. So he's encouraging his followers, his, his followers back then and today, to watchfulness and vigilance. And then he, to illustrate this, he tells three parables, one about the timing as, of his return. In one case, it's a parable about it being totally unexpected when he comes back. The next one, it's about him coming back sooner than you would expect. And then the third one, which we're going to look at, is about him coming back later than you would expect. His broader point is, we have no idea when this is happen, happening. You can't predict it. And so um, that's what Jesus means in, in chapter 25 when he says, at that time, he means at the end of time when he comes and arrives as king, the end of history. So let's look at the parable now itself in chapter 25. And by the way, the scene of this parable is a wedding. Chapter 25 verse 1. At that time, the end of time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now, let's stop there. We're going to kind of take this parable in pieces. Now, let's be honest. It sounds a little weird when we read that. It's like, what is going on here? Virgins, bridegroom. This sounds kind of otherworldly. But to a first century listener, this would have sounded totally normal. Um, it, this isn't something strange at all. Um, Jesus says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who go out to meet this bridegroom. Highlight, if you're taking notes, ten virgins and bridegroom. Uh, bridegroom just means groom. So, again, it's a wedding. There's the groom. And then the ten virgins sounds strange to us because in English, the word virgin we mainly use to refer to lack of sexual activity. In the ancient world, it, it had a broader meaning, this word. It, um, it, it meant something broader to kind of just sort of a young woman, maybe similar to like the word maiden. Uh, but in this case, it's a wedding. And so this language of the ten virgins is uh, closer to what we might think of as bridesmaids. These are young women who are a part of the, f- the family of the bride and groom who are a part of the wedding celebration. That, that's who these, these young women are. And so they're going out to meet the groom in this wedding celebration. Now, here's how first century weddings went in the Jewish world. Um, what would happen was the groom would uh, go to the bride's house, and, and then the two of them, uh, the, the groom would escort the bride to his house where there would be a big banquet celebration. And kind of from her house to his house was like a parade. And so they would be going through the streets and uh, they'd be accompanied by family members who would be singing and dancing and celebrating. And so that's the image here, is these 10 young women waiting to accompany the groom on this uh, celebratory parade at the beginning of this, this wedding celebration. So so far, in these first four verses, the parable is very realistic. I mean, this is a scene that was very common in Jesus' day. And it tells us, of these ten bridesmaids, five were foolish, five were wise. Highlight that if you're taking notes. Foolish and wise. He's contrasting these two groups. Now it's starting to sound a little more like a fable, right? Five were foolish, five were wise. Um, he says that the foolish ones took lamps, but uh, no extra oil. So highlight lamps and oil. Um, let me show you what kind of lamp we're talking about here. Uh, this is, this is a, a lamp from that era. It looked like kind of a sort of flattened 
teapot, and uh, there would have been oil on the inside, which was the fuel, and then a wick that came out through that spout, and there would be kind of a flame on the end of it. So the foolish bridesmaids, Jesus is saying, had their lamps with the oil, but no extra oil. Um, The wise one, though, brought the lamp with the oil in it and also had a little extra oil with them. So let's keep reading now that we kind of have a picture of what's going on. Verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. These are the bridesmaids. They all dozed off. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, that's the wicks. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. So this is where the parable departs a little bit from reality, Um, real life experience in the first century. It would have been very strange for the bride and groom to begin this family celebration to the banquet at midnight. Like that just wouldn't have happened. And so highlight at midnight. This is kind of what's unusual in this scene that Jesus is is painting. And so Jesus' original listeners in the first century probably would have smiled at the idea, just the image of this late night thing and these women falling asleep and, you know, dozing off. And so he says in the waiting for this thing that started way later than, than it would normally start, the five foolish, they ran out of oil. They ran out of fuel for their lamp. And they asked to borrow some from the wise five, which refuse. And because they think, look, if we give you some, we might all, there might not be any lamps that work. And so the five say to the wise, to the five foolish, you know, go buy your own, basically. Now, what would have happened at the time was um, when it was known in a community that there would have been a large celebration like this, there would have been merchants on hand. So people selling food or flowers, uh, oil for lamps, not unlike the fireworks stands that pop up around here at New Year's and Fourth of July. Some of y'all love them. Some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for that to be over. Um, but it's like that. So, there, so go buy some oil from the merchants who are here. And it tells us the groom emerges, the celebratory parade's about to begin, but half the bridesmaids who are going to be sort of lighting the way and celebrating are about to have non-functioning lamps. They're not going to be able to really participate. So let's keep reading the last few verses here. Verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So while the foolish bridesmaids are buying their oil, the parade starts without them. And the guests arrive, and the the five wise uh, bridesmaids with the groom, and and they go into the banquet, and the door is shut. Highlight that. The the door was shut. And the foolish five later um, show up, and they beg to be let in, but the groom says, I don't know you. Highlight that phrase, I don't know you. Now, this is the part where Jesus is really making his spiritual point, and this kind of departs from reality. If this had happened in real life in in, in the first century in a wedding, um, the foolish five would have shown up late. They would have been let in. They probably would have felt bad about it, but they would have been let in. And so original listeners to Jesus saying this would have been shocked at the idea of, like, 
they're locked out and they're going to stay out. That, that just wouldn't have been what they were expecting. And then Jesus finishes by just telling us the point. And if it sounds familiar, it's, he said this in chapter 24 as well. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Highlight that. Keep watch. You do not know the day or the hour. So that's the parable. Let's talk now for a moment about what we're supposed to take away from this. I think there's four key ideas that we need to grasp inside the parable. And we're gonna, I want to go through these four and then talk about how we respond personally. The first key idea is that the groom represents Jesus. You may have guessed this. The groom represents Jesus when he returns to usher in his kingdom at the end of history. The groom represents Christ. Um, Secondly, the second idea is that the bridesmaids represent two ways for us to respond to Jesus. We will be prepared for his arrival or we won't. So there's two ways to respond. The third point is this. Spiritual preparedness is non-transferable. This is the point of the oil. God invites each of us into relationship with him, into his kingdom, and we are each accountable individually for our response to him. We, we cannot inherit a saving faith in Christ from someone else, and we can't pass it down to someone else. It is up to each individual to respond to Christ. Fourth, there is a finite window of time to respond. So in a, in a real first century wedding, the banquet doors would have probably been opened to these delayed bridesmaids. Jesus, in his parable, is telling us the doors are open to his kingdom. We are invited into relationship with him. But one day, and we don't know when, those doors will close. And that opportunity will no longer be there. And we'll come back to that idea in a moment. So, how are we to respond personally to this parable and these key ideas, these four lessons. Well, for those of us who are Christians, uh, I think we are meant to have really two primary reactions. One of them is kind of an internal reaction, and one of them is an external reaction. The first reaction, which is an internal one, is excitement and security. Excitement and security. Because if you have placed your faith in Christ in a genuine way, if your life bears witness to this, to the authenticity of your faith, then you are one of the five whys in this parable. Uh, You can look forward to the arrival of Christ, the groom, with excitement. You can feel security that you will follow him into the banquet, which represents his kingdom. So you can feel excitement about that and security in that. But one very common and very sad misinterpretation of this parable is for Christians to be afraid. Like, what if I do something wrong? What if I'm not prepared? Am I going to miss it? Here's the fear. What if Jesus says to me, I don't know you? I mean, I haven't really been following him that great lately, and I've been, you know, I I sinned in this way last week, and, you know, what if I'm at risk of not being let in? The doors are going to close on me. What if he says, I don't know you? He won't. He won't. If you've been saved by Christ, he does know you. And actually, his spirit indwells you. And so in the parable, notice, he didn't say, I no longer know you. Like, I used to know you, but you blew it. Now I don't know you anymore. It's like I don't even know you anymore. That's not what he says. 
he says, I don't know you, as in, I've never known you. I don't recognize you. Who are, you know? So it's wrong to read this parable and think that you have to work hard to do everything right, to make sure you're prepared for Jesus' arrival. Am I prepared? That is not the gospel. That is not in sync with everything Jesus taught and with the broader message of the New Testament. That's you trying to earn your salvation. That, that, you know, on your own merit. The gospel is you've been saved by grace through faith. This is a gift from God. You want to talk about what you can do to work your way to heaven? Jesus put it very concisely in John 6, 29. He said this, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. It's about faith. That's the one thing you can do. You don't earn your salvation in the first place. You can't unearn it. So to be one of the wise five in this parable is to have placed your trust in Christ for salvation. That is it. You are not at risk of Jesus saying to you, I don't know you. So, so that's one reaction if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ, is excitement about Jesus' kingdom and security that you will be with God in his kingdom forever with every other believer in Christ who's ever lived. That is meant to give us a sense of excitement and security. So that's, that's one reaction. It's kind of an internal, personal reaction. The second reaction, though, is quite different. And the second reaction, I believe, this is the external one, is concern and urgency. Concern and urgency. You should feel concern for people you know and people you don't know who don't know Christ who have not prepared themselves for his arrival by coming into a saving relationship. There are people you know and people I know who are the foolish five in this parable. They are not ready for Jesus' arrival. They are at risk of missing out on relationship with him and entrance into his kingdom. Some of them are not even really waiting for his arrival, not sure there is a groom, not sure there is a banquet. He's not on their radar. Some people, though, and this is the more tragic one, I think, a little scarier, is people who think they know God but really don't. Jesus alluded to this throughout the Gospels. People who think, well, I'm a good person. I'm not a murderer. You know, I, I, I try to be nice. You know, I go to church occasionally. And, you know, I think all things considered, at the end of my life, the scales will tip in my favor. And, you know, the gospel isn't about scales. It's not about earning anything. It's not about trying to have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Very popular idea in the culture. It is not biblical. This, this scale imagery is not biblical. It is about whether you have given your life to Christ and trusted him for salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way into the kingdom. So while those of us who are Christians can feel an internal security and excitement about one day being with Jesus in his kingdom, we should also feel a very deep, profound sense of concern and urgency about those who will miss out on it. Because Jesus made it clear, we don't know when the end will happen. So procrastination, laziness, complacency, apathy, they are not options for us if we seek to see people as Jesus does. So let's talk about practical application for a second. What can we do in light of, of, of these reactions in this parable? If you're a Christian, 
Take some time to thank God for the reassurance that he offers you and ask him to help you feel that. To take away the anxieties you feel about your standing with him. To feel this reassurance, this security about your life now and your future. So ask him that first reaction about security and excitement. Ask him to, feel, ask, ask him to help you feel that in your life on a daily basis. And ask him also for you to have that concern for those who don't know him and an urgency about sharing Christ with them. I want to encourage you to do something really specific. You can do it now, today, before you leave here. I would encourage you to grab this card that's on the table. We have these out here most weeks. This is to write someone's name or some people's names that you know who don't know Christ. It could be a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, family member. They could live here in Houston or they could live in Alaska. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Someone who, that you know who doesn't know Christ and write their name or their names on here, fold it up and put it in that box. And when you see that box on Sundays, let it be a reminder to you to pray for them, to lift them up to the Lord. Have a sense of concern and urgency for them. So I'd encourage you, before you leave today, before you walk out, put a card in that box. And then make a note to yourself to be praying for these people on a regular basis. Um, And then have the conversation with them. You know, ask God for opportunities to talk with them about your faith. Um, And you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have a speech written. (laughs) You don't have to try to anticipate every question they might ask that you might not know the answer to. You can trust God will work in you in that moment. So just tell them what your faith means to you. Share your story. Or invite them to church. We're going to make it really easy. On February 9th, so just about a month from now, we're going to begin a multi-month series walking through the Gospel of John. We're going to literally introduce people to Jesus and what he said and what he's like. So you could invite someone and you could walk with them through this series. You could talk with them about the questions they have and the things they're wrestling with. Um, And we're going to have invite cards made up that are specific to that series so that you can uh, invite somebody that you know. I do want to say, though, it's important not to put too much pressure on yourself in these conversations. Um, You can't control their response. You're not called to save people. You can't save people. You're called to be faithful and share the good news, to tell people about Jesus. I'm called to that. You're called to that. Now, I do want to say something um, to any of you in the room uh, who don't know Jesus as Lord. Um, If you haven't given your life to him, if you have not begun to explore this, you have to understand that God's deepest desire is for you to know him personally and experience joy and hope that only comes through him. And he left no doubt about how he feels about you. Because he gave his life for you. And guess what? He didn't give his life for you when you had everything sorted out and you had made yourself acceptable to him and gotten your life straightened out and acted like a very nice person. The scripture teaches he gave his life knowing every shameful thing you've ever done or thought or ever will do or think. And knowing all that about you, you are still worth it to him. He made you, he knows you, he loves you beyond anything you could ever imagine. But 
He is sovereign over history. He created the universe and he is he rules over it and he's sovereign over history. And he has decided that there will be a time when he ushers in his kingdom. And at that point, the door will be closed and we may not understand why. But an almighty God who made us and the universe and who defines right and wrong and who is the very definition of love has the right to order history how he wishes. And in the way that in his infinite wisdom is the best way to bring the most people freely into relationship with him. But his desire is that you will be there. (laughs) That's what he wants. Jesus' disciple Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter. I love the way he put this. Look what he said. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, to come into relationship with him. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Not everyone will be like the five wise in the parable entering the kingdom, but God wants everyone to be. That is his heart. That is his desire. He has opened the door for everybody to join him, to follow him, to experience unimaginable joy with him forever. But he has left the choice to us. He does not compel us to follow him and walk through the door. The choice is is up to us. So if you don't know Jesus or you haven't asked and answered the deep questions of God and of your purpose, you should be concerned and have a sense of urgency about yourself. Even if you're skeptical about God's existence, you would have to at least admit this. If there's a God, if there's a God and he made himself known and he made his plans known, to you, which included an invitation into relationship with him. If that were all true, there would be nothing in your life more important than responding to that invitation and exploring that. I mean, what if you're wrong? You need to doubt your doubts. You need to question the things that you assume to be true and consider what Jesus said. Keep watch, he said. You don't know the day or the hour. So just in closing, as we think about the kingdom, and we're going to unfold even over the next few weeks more about what Jesus said about the kingdom, Jesus calls us to watchfulness, to vigilance, to anticipation, both in the sense of joyful excitement and security for those who know him, anticipation, but also in the sense of deep concern on the part of those who do not know him. So let's pray that Jesus guides our hearts and minds as we respond.